0: We are in Zechariah. We're opening up Zechariah for the next three weeks. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament, the penultimate book of the Old Testament, just before Matthew. So you can go to Zechariah chapter 1. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It was game six of the 2003 World Series between the New York Yankees and the Florida Marlins. And I was watching it intensely. Beat the hated Yankees, right? And it was during the course of that game that suddenly the broadcast went black and the power went out. And that's when we knew that it was getting really serious. Outside, the sky was dark gray and it was snowing ash upon the mountain. Inside, we instantly scrambled to get the most important belongings we possessed, uncertain if we would ever see the house again and so we made as most of us here did the trek off the mountain October 25th 2003 and spent a week and a half or so in exile away from home with relatives homes in hotel rooms wherever we could manage it was called the old fire right and It claimed six lives. It burned over 900 homes, consumed over 70,000 acres, and cost almost $40 million to fight. And November 2nd, it was claimed to be contained, and I believe it was November 4th, that we were able to finally make our way back home. And do you remember those feelings Do you remember that experience of what are we going to find when we get back here? And the shock when you saw things that once were no longer. Or things that still remained and you swore it wouldn't be there again. Both the joy and the depression, right? The ecstasy and the disappointment. They, they went hand in hand. And there was a sense of, we can't wait to get back home. And we were coming home. All of us, we, we got home. But there's also this sense when it wasn't home anymore. Almost like it just wasn't the home that we left. We came back and it was different than we remembered. Things would never be the same. Although some things would always be the same. And that to me is about as close as I can compare Our experience with what Israel had to go through. When Babylon, a ferocious foreign empire, comes marching in like a fire upon their home. Siege the walls. Starving first, it came slowly, starving the people out. And people would die. And the dead bodies would create disease. And then eventually the walls are breached. And the sword did the rest. As women were screaming, men were dying, families were ripped from one another. And those that survived were no longer welcome to stay at home. They were taken away to Babylon. And even those who were looked upon as the least and the last and the lost, they were left behind just to stay with the rubble, Where they were left, it was home, but it was no longer home. It would never, ever be the same. But then, some 60 years later, the Persians come into power, right? And they take down the Babylonian Empire. And the Persians' first move is to say, all you people thrown out of your homes from the mean Babylonians, we're going to play savior, we're going to play nice guy. Return home, rebuild your destroyed cities and rebuild, and rebuild your temples. And that included Israel. And so Israel heard the news from the Persian emperor. He said, "Go home. Go, go, go restore, go restart your lives." And some of them did. And they returned to Jerusalem with ecstatic singing and rejoicing. At one psalmist, who's probably amongst them, Psalm 126 said that when we returned, the captives returned to Zion, to Jerusalem, we were like those who dreamed. And our mouths were full of rejoicing and the nations proclaimed the lord has done great things for them yes indeed he's done great things for us but as they're coming can you imagine what what did home once look like what do you think when you think about home what does home mean for some of us it's a person for others of us it's a place maybe for most it's both and there's, there's a sort of familiarity that defines home. It's this place of belonging where you know that when I'm there, though all the world is crumbling, I'm okay at home. But imagine the Jews coming back. Nothing is familiar anymore. Nothing is what it once looked like. The streets they once lived, where are they? The temple that was once the center of our lives what is that heap of rubble they were on their way home but it was not home frederick buchner is a christian author and he has this story where his main character goes off on a long journey and it's when he's coming home that the that the town the village he's from is very excited and they gather together to welcome this hero, back from his journey. And his kids are there in the very front, excited for daddy. Yay, dad, he's back. And they painted a sign for him by hand that says, Welcome home. Except, being the children that they are, the M on home was missing the final leg. So it was H-O-N-E. Welcome hone, And... Frederick Buchner comments on that story that he wrote and he says that I did that because that's just the way I imagined it. You have this hero who is away from home and he goes through these experiences, whether good or bad, traumatic or ecstatic, and it's when he comes back, home is never gonna be the same. And he just imagined that the children messed up the sign, it says, Welcome home. It's one little line, one little leg away from saying home. And that that's what he's coming to. Hone. Almost home. Not quite home. And that is how I imagine the Israelites feeling as they come back to Jerusalem. It's home, but it's not quite exactly home. There's something missing. There's something just short. It's hone. And this is welcome hone celebration. And it is in this context that we find the book... Of Zechariah. You see, the people had high expectations coming back. While they were gone, the prophet said outlandish things like this. When you come back, God is going to prosper you and you're going to be the richest nation in the world. And all of the nations of the earth will come to you and come to your temple and worship Yahweh. And your king will be restored to the throne and he will not reign just over Israel. He will reign over the nations. Those are lofty promises. And as they're coming back home, yes, we're free from Babylon. This is our moment. This is our chance. And they come back. And all they find is disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Yeah, Babylon's not ruling us anymore, but guess who is now? Persia. The nations aren't coming to us to worship God with us, to submit to our king. They're threatening us. We aren't prosperous, as Mike shared us last week in Haggai. They weren't prosperous at all. They were struggling with famines. It seems that every word the prophets promised were not coming fulfilled. So thus, home was a big disappointment. And it looked more like hone, right? It was just short. It was just missing. Something wasn't right. That is why C.S. Lewis says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's what Israel learns. And I believe we learn through the book of Zechariah is that there's this anticipation of, at last we found home, and they get there, and they realize we're not satisfied. This isn't what we thought it would be. And you see what we learn? Those promises of blessing. Those are yet future. Those are the promises of their true home. And Jerusalem, as nice of a place as it was to restart their life, to raise a family, to worship God. That was not their true home. It lied elsewhere. It was yet to come. And so Zechariah has to deal with that. So what we're going to do in our three messages here through Zechariah is we're looking at the theme, longing for home, because that is what the Jews are feeling. And that's what Zechariah is communicating to this longing for home. They're there, but they're ah, we're not yet there. There's still this longing for it. And we all, if we agree with C.S. Lewis's quote there, we are all longing for something that has not yet been fulfilled. Because, yeah, we have homes, we have houses here, but they aren't our ultimate home. They aren't our true destination. It's as if all of this is just hone. There's just a little leg missing. It hasn't quite reached its fruition. So longing for home is what we're going to look at in our three messages. And tonight, if you did your reading, um, I understand if you didn't, because we didn't get that reading schedule out to you in time. But if you did your reading You'll know that Zechariah 1-6 through 6 has some strange pictures, a lot of weird visions. So this is called Eight Dreams of Home. Eight Dreams of Home. So we're going to look at those. So real briefly, what is the book of Zechariah about? He's here um, alongside with Haggai, which Mike taught last week. So there are two prophets on the scene at the same time, and they're both telling the people the same thing. All right, we have come back to the homeland for... Over 15 years, and the temple still isn't built. Just a foundation. That's it. Imagine the gym there. The progress you see. If It just stayed there for about 20 years. (laughs) I I guarantee you, Pastor Mike, would become a prophet. So Haggai and Zechariah team up, and both of them are urging the people, it has been way too long, let's rebuild this temple. Now, why did the temple building stop? Quite frankly, it was disappointment. They had come back, they began the work of rebuilding the temple, and they looked around, and every promise they thought that should be fulfilled was not being fulfilled. It's like, I guess God forgot us. God hasn't returned. Let's just go on our own lives and make do with what we got. This is it, this is the best it's going to be. And the prophets show up and say, No! no way this is not the best it's going to be haggai comes on the scene and gives them practical reasons right this is the reason you guys are having famines you're running out of money is because you're not building the temple so very practical haggai comes in and says build the temple they start building it Zechariah comes alongside in the midst of the building and says all right you're all looking at this building and you're thinking this is not quite the temple we remember this is kind of pathetic or is this really going to do any good because the nations are still threatening us he says while you build the temple presently i want you to see a picture of it in the future so his emphasis is on what the temple will look like one day out in the blue in other words he's basically talking about their true home this is where all of what you're doing this is where it's going and i want you to look at where it's going so that you can have more effort and energy and encouragement to work on it now in the present so here are some glimpses of your true home and where it's going so So they're encouraged by Zechariah's outward looking at the glory, the future of the temple. The time period is 520 BC. So we're half a millennium before Jesus. We're about 60 years after um, Israel fell to Babylon. Uh, We're about 19 years returned from Babylon. So they've been back for about 19 years at this point. And briefly the outline of this book. Tonight, chapters 1 through 6, um, Zechariah gives the people eight dreams. In chapters 7 through 8, you're reading for next week, right? Short one there. 7 through 8 is four messages. Eight dreams, four messages. And then chapters 9 through 14 are two prophecies. So Zechariah's got three weapons in his belt. Dreams, messages, and prophecies. And we'll look at each of those and how he's... Encouraging the people and their longing for home. All right, with that, I have two more quotes from C.S. Lewis. So just so you're forewarned, okay? He was, he was a master at writing about our future hope, I think. So I, I when I read this quote in Mere Christianity, I thought this is exactly what Zechariah is doing. So I have to share it. So he says this C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country or home, right? The, the terminology we're using, home, heaven. So I must keep alive in myself my desire for my true country. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and not only to press on to that other country, but and to help others do the same. So this must be the main object of my life is to press on to my true home, not to make my home too much here and to limit what God's doing, but to look at the future. What is, what, this is just home. This isn't home. I'm moving to the real home. And to not only keep your sights there and moving in that direction, but to help others do the same. Bring them alongside you in the journey in that direction. Zechariah does exactly that. As the people are discouraged at the present situation of things and thinking, ah, this isn't home at all. This is not what we expected. He's saying, no, no, it's going somewhere. Let's press in together and let's see where the true home is. Let's move that way. Let's find it. And so he's, he's encouraging them in that way by giving them eight dreams, eight night visions, eight visions in the night. Is the way it says in the ESV. So these eight dreams, if you will, he casts them to the people and says, hey, come with me. This is a glimpse of our true home, these dreams. Dreams are like that, right? They, they are weird. They're strange. They happen in the silent of night while you're asleep. And it seems like you're inactive. The night is silent. It's still. It's dark. The world stops unless you're in New York City. It's just quiet. But the dream is happening the dream is active the dream is engaging the dream is working and then the strangeness that dreams happen occasionally wouldn't you say that they see more accurately than your real eyes do they say that some of our weird dreams about teeth falling out about being naked in public the dream where you you fall and you jet awake right um, the dream where you fail the test or can't get to the test, or you take the test, it's all in gibberish, or you fail, you know, all these different, these common dreams that we all have different versions of. They say, experts say that these actually say things about what's happening within us that we're not aware of. That sometimes they mean things, like the naked dream means you're just a very, you're dealing with something very, very insecure about or people are scrutinizing you and you and, and your dreams will come out in ways that show your vulnerability, Sometimes dreams see more clearly than our own eyes do. And here, I believe Zechariah's eight night visions are like those dreams. And they're showing the people, this is the reality behind everything that you see with your eyes. The disappointment around you, it might seem like night, dark, silent, nothing's happening. But beyond that, beneath that, under that, through that, God is at work. He's doing something. So here are the eight dreams. Number one, one verse seven we see peace one verse seven on the 24th day of the 11th month which is the month of shabbat in the second year of darius the word of the lord came to the prophet zechariah the son of Berechiah, son of edo saying now zechariah was the son of a priest so he's a priest and a prophet he says i saw verse eight in the night behold a man riding on a red horse and he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? And the angel now you're gonna see the angel kind of guide him through these dreams. He's gonna be like the guide, the commentator, they're gonna talk back and forth. The angel who um the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was riding among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord, who's riding among the myrtle trees and said, we have we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, "O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? 70 years refers to the exile. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for I was angry but a little, but they furthered the disaster. So that's referring to Babylon, right? God was going to punish his people for the disobedience. Babylon was to do that, but Babylon took it a step too far, and God said, now Babylon must be dealt with. Um, verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So you cried out, where are you? What's happening? He says, cry again. (laughs) Cry this instead. My cities shall overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So this is the opening dream. And what's going on? You have these four horsemen, these four different colored horses. They're gathering in the myrtle trees. The picture is of a reconnaissance mission. These four horses went out to patrol the earth. They went to go investigate, to gather information. What's the enemy up to? What are the nations doing right now? It's a secret mission. So they they rendezvous. They gather together in the myrtle trees in a secret hideout where they can't be seen. So it's a sense of hush, the secret mission. And they gather together and they report, we've patrolled the earth and all of the earth is at rest. Now that seems like good news. The earth is at rest. There's peace. Woo! But the angel upon hearing the report cries out, Lord, how long will you neglect mercy on your people? See, the picture is, if the world is at peace, it means the Persians have complete control of their empire. And Israel has no hope of rising up to the kingdom they've been promised to be. So that's the devastation of the report. It opens up sad. No! But then the Lord says, wait a minute. Behind all of this, this is what you need to see. I will return. I am jealous for my people. I will punish your enemies and you will be prosperous. Dream number two is in verse 18. So it's the vision of four horns and four craftsmen. And it says, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. So imagine like the horns of an animal. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these going to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered judah so that no one raised his head and these the craftsmen have come to terrify them the horns to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of judah to scatter it so the picture is israel and you've got these four animal horns and they've chased them like an angry bull right and they've scattered around but the craftsmen these four craftsmen come up and they basically terrify the horns and get the horns and scatter them away What is this? What's going on? Well, some people would see in this Daniel chapter 7. And John just went, take us through Daniel, right? A few weeks ago. Daniel 7, there's a vision of the four terrifying beasts. And each of them represents these nations that are going to tyrannize Israel. And you have Babylon. You have Persia. You have Greece. And you have Rome. So those are the four horns. And then the four craftsmen would be the nations that took down each of those nations, right? Persia took down Babylon. Greece took down Persia. Rome took down Greece. And the Messiah's kingdom, as the Jews were looking for, would take down the Roman kingdom. And all would be settled. Uh, Although that's not a bad way to look at that. I think contextually what Zechariah is actually seeing is if you have four horns, um, likely two horns belong to one animal. So you have two animals, not four entities, but two. And the ones that actually scatter Israel, Greece and Rome had nothing to do with the scattering of Israel. That was Assyria and Babylon. So that the four horns are Assyria and Babylon, these two charging bulls that scatter the people, and the four craftsmen are symbolic of Persia, who are the ones that are going to exact punishment upon Assyria and Babylon. So the short of what this dream says is this. I am dealing with your enemies. They will not get off scot free. Don't worry. So that should be comforting to them. Dream number three. This is grace, a dream of grace. Chapter two, verse one. No, I'm ahead of myself. This is, um, dream number three is the unwalled city. Pardon me, the unwalled city. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and its length. Why is he measuring it? To build walls, to restore the city. Now, verse three, and behold, the angel who talked to me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run and say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of the people and the livestock in it. And I will be to her, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So they're about getting ready to measure the city so they can build up the walls and make it all safe and fortified. And the angel intercepts the other angel and says, no, stop. God says this city will not have walls because it is going to be so abundant we don't want you to limit God's plans to it. They're going to burst out of whatever walls you build. This place is going to be thriving. It's going to be the center of the world. Prosperity, people and animals and cattle it's all going to just be bubbling out of the city. Don't dare limit it by building walls. They will not be able to contain it. So the challenge there is that's the good news, right? This dream says, jerusalem will one day exceed this pathetic disappointing place we see right now and that's going to be part of our true home there's just going to be this place where everything is prosperous and blessed and it's growing and there's no limitations upon our god in life and let me just quickly caution us here not to wall the power or purpose of god and I think we're often guilty of saying this is the way it's supposed to operate and we build the walls and we expect it all to kind of happen in there. God would say, wait a minute. I'll protect it. I'll provide. Unwalled. Live unwalled. That's vulnerable. It's risky. But it also enables the power of God to do his work rather than our strategizing. Dream number four is grace. Chapter three. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say Satan, it says the accuser. Um, Satan is a translation, and that's how we get the name Satan. It just means the accuser. So there's this guy there to accuse Joshua, who's become the emblem of Satan, the accuser. So there's Joshua, he's like, he's no good, he's worthless, he's disappointing. But in verse two, the Lord said to the accuser, Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And you imagine a stick in the fire. It's about to be consumed, right? To be plucked from it. So be just to save it before it burns. That's Israel. They were in the exile and God just plucked them out. They're saved. Um, Verse three. Now, Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Filthy is a unique word. The word here for filthy is unique in the Old Testament. The closest two words we have to this word are words that mean um, human excrement and human vomit. So two closely related words are translated that way elsewhere. So you get the idea that he's extremely dirty. I mean, this isn't just all coffee stain. (laughs) This is really, really disgusting. Unworthy of being before God. So verse four, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him and to him he said behold i have taken your iniquity away from you and i will clothe you with the pure vestments so a picture of grace right and this this remember these dreams are visions they're glimpses into our true home the disappointment around israel is not home it's just home just a nice place to make a living but home gets rid of the filthy garments home says that's not who you are you are worthy to be in the presence of god and the accuser will be rebuked and sent out and that's what jesus has done for us is he's exchanged our garments that are soiled and dirty with our own pride and selfishness and arrogance and exchanged them and given us his cleanliness right and joshua the high priest here It's not only his problem. He's representing the people as the high priest did before God. So this is symbolic of what God's doing to all of his people. Encouragement. Hey, when we get home, there will be no more filth. Verse chapter four, excuse me, chapter four, dream number five. This one's bizarre. There's this image of a lampstand, just like in the in the temple. So it's got seven lights. You remember the branch, the seven, six branches from that stem, seven lights. And what Zachariah sees here is two trees on either side, and there are pipes coming from the trees to fill up a bowl that's on top of the lamp, and then the bowl that's filled up trickles down and fuels the lamps. So they're presumably olive trees that are flowing oil to the bowl, and the bowl feeds the lamp, so they're perpetually burning and giving light. Um. So what this means, what the oil means, is that the Holy Spirit is going to enable Zerubbabel, the governor of Jerusalem at the time, to build the temple. And you get that from 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? The mountain is rubble, right? The destroyed temple. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Serubbabel, he shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So that's the picture of the temple will be built despite this disappointing heap of rubble. Sir is going to do it not by his strength or power, but by the Holy Spirit. So, it's like that lamp that's being fueled by oil. But now the question is, what are the two trees that are fueling this process, this building of the temple? Who is fueling? that the Holy Spirit is there fueling it, but who are the trees delivering the Holy Spirit to the process? Um, Some would say it's Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. Or there's an alternative explanation, which um, I I favor this one. It doesn't really matter, but I, I think that it's the two prophets who are driving the building process. And it's through their spoken word that the Holy Spirit is empowering the people to do this. The two trees, the two prophets would be Haggai, Zechariah, and if indeed those are the two trees then what you have is the entire process the entire journey to our true home is supplemented by the power of the holy spirit and the preaching of the word of god sounds like a good way to run a church so vision number six dream number six chapter five what he sees here is a scroll flying through the air. Dreams are weird, right? So give them some slack. It's a scroll, 15 by 30 feet. Huge. It's got writing on the front and on the back. So it's larger than normal for scrolls. And it's flying in the air. And it's calling down curses upon those who, um, oh, it escapes me. The thief and him who swears falsely, verse 4. Calling curses down upon them. So essentially what this dream is seeing is, okay, God is going to hold accountable those who are oppressing and sinning against their neighbors. He's going to call them accountable. So part of the way home, the glimpse of our true home, is that there's a place where these people are held accountable. There's no more oppression. There are no more oppressors. Dream number seven, five verse five. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I asked, what is it? He said, this is, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. So there's a basket he sees and the basket is iniquity. Iniquity is a fancy word for sin. Verse seven, and behold, the leaden cover was lifted. And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This, the woman, is wickedness. Don't, don't, don't go too far with that, okay? <laughs> and he, the angel, thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. You're like, what in the world? This this really does sound like a dream. I have dreams like that. It's weird. Then I lifted my eyes and saw and behold two women coming forward and the wind was in their wings So they're flying women, uh, maybe angels of some sort They had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth Then I said to the angel who talked with me. Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me To the land of shinar Which is another word for babylon shinar is the region in which babylon is built. It's a it's a plain. so to the land of babylon to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So a basket of sin, a woman of wickedness, two angels or flying women take it to Babylon, set it down on its base in, it, in a house built for it. The imagery um, of, of a base to put something down on in a house built for it is what you would do for temples you would um build a house was often called or a temple is often called the house of a god god often say that about his temple right build me my house and so forth so the house might be a temple and the base a base is something you put an idol upon so by taking this woman in the basket away uh maybe what the what this dream what this vision is is that he's seeing idolatry this woman would be an idol an idolatrous figure And that, the idolatry is being taken back to Babylon where it came from. So while the people suffered in exile, when they come to their true home, idolatry will be the only thing going into exile. And idolators. So that will be done away with. That's part of the vision of home. And then finally, the eighth dream, chapter 6. For sake of time, I'm just going to briefly explain what's going on we see horses again this time they're pulling chariots and zachariah is wondering what are these for this time it's not a secret reconnaissance mission these horses are you know the before like the horse derbies um they're they're behind the gate and they're just digging and clawing and they're ready to go at it that's how he describes these horses they can't wait to be given the word to charge these are war horses these are horses going in for action. Two of them go up north. One goes down south, maybe Babylon, Egypt. Um, and one, one doesn't say where he goes. He kind of stays put. So uh, I'm not really sure. And a lot of people aren't really sure what this is about. But what it says to me is where the whole thing started with this peace. And the horses are just like, oh, yeah, everything is at calm. Be secretive. And there's a frustration like, God, do something. Do something. So now we go through all the dreams and by the eighth one the horses are now charging full blast i think the point is is that along this whole time while israel sees disappointment and rubble around them and it seems like when you dream you know you're asleep the dark night is there nothing's happening nothing's moving god is saying through this last vision no something is happening right now i am charging i am moving i am sending my horses out be not discouraged be not disappointed but rather look through the disappointment and find home. Chapter six closes like this. So the dreams are done and it all comes down to this coronation ceremony in verse nine. um, These exiles are told to bring gold. They came from Babylon. Uh, They take silver and gold and they make a crown, verse 11, and they set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. And in verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. He shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. You get that? (laughs) And shall bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne. Now, wait a minute. The branch wasn't crowned. Joshua was crowned. But the branch is going to come build the temple and sit on his own throne. what's going on here two kings and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall between them both so yes there's gonna be two kings a priest joshua and this the branch is going to also have a throne and they're going to sit together and rule and it says that that council of peace will be between them in other words they're not going to clash you're not going to be rivals but they are going to rule as co-equals and they're going to cooperate with one another interesting huh um verse 14 and the crown shall be okay that's full verse 15 And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Those who are far off shall come to help to build the temple of the Lord. All right, so what do we have here? In one sense, this is what you see. Joshua, the high priest, is crowned. He's in charge of the temple building project. He's the high priest after all but he's also told that this is going to happen when the branch comes and he's going to help lead you in the building project. Well, we know that Zerubbabel is the guy that builds the um, temple. And interestingly, he's also, Zerubbabel is one of the remaining sons of David. So he actually has royal blood. He has a right to the throne. So Zerubbabel could be the branch. And he and Joshua come and co-reign together together. And get the building project done. And those who are far away come. Those are exiles still in Babylon and across the rest of the world. They're going to trickle in and help with the building process. In one sense, that's what it means. But it's also kind of like hone, right? There's a leg missing. Because are they really ruling together? How much rulership do you have when you're actually a servant and a tributary to the Persian Empire? It sounds like wannabe ruling. It sounds like play kinging, right? So, in one sense, that seems to be the immediate context. But there also seems to be another sense happening here. And Jeremiah talks about the branch as well. And he talks about it as this future comer who's going to be a deliverer. And maybe what the branch is that we're seeing is Jesus. Who comes and he walks around like he's king or something. And starts to say things like, the kingdom of God is like this. And when you see me, the son of man, at the right hand of the father... These are king words. And then Luke says he ascends to the right hand of God. These are king terms. And he comes around and he's the the king of the earth. He's the Zerubbabel. He's the branch. And does he not come to build the temple? Did he not tell the people this, this, this temple in Jerusalem that you see, it's going to be no more. If every stone upon it's going to be thrown down, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it back up and stuff like that. Right. And what we see is that the temple does get destroyed and then he resurrects and we see that he begins to draw people to himself and Paul and Peter in Ephesians two and first Peter chapter two, both of them say that the church is the temple of God. So that what Jesus was saying is not that physical temple in Jerusalem. That thing is rubbish. It's not going to be there anymore. It's just stones. But the real temple of God is going to be made up not of stones, not in being one spot, but it's going to be made up of people, and it's going to be across the globe. Jesus is a temple builder. That means he is the branch. Joshua, the high priest, is the kingdom of priests that Peter calls us. We are the priests of God. We represent him to the world. We represent the world to him. We are the middlemen. We are the priests. We are the Joshua. Does not the Bible say that we will reign with Christ? There you have the two thrones. And so you have the temple builder, the son of David, the ruler. And you have the priests who are called into his work to help with building the temple. And... If in the immediate context, those who are far off are exiles coming home to help build, in our context, those who are far off are the universal exiles that don't know their true home yet, that are joining the church, that are coming to build the temple by being part of the temple. Do you know when you became a Christian, you were, as Paul says, a stone put into the temple? You helped build the temple. And so, actually, in Ephesians chapter 2, you can look this up later tonight, Paul uses his exact phrase for the church and the temple. He says this. See if you hear the phrase. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 17 of Ephesians 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. Picture, Paul says, is this. Those who are far off come near and they join together and they make a temple unto God. That is you before you were saved. You were far off. You were lost, but you came home. You were no longer an alien, but you found your true home. You found it in Christ and you were brought near and we built the temple as Zechariah is encouraging the people to do to build their temple. And that we begin to discover, this is home. This, this, this is a glimpse of home. Jesus, we're the exiles who are far away and we're being called near. However, you are like me and if you're like any of the people i have had some time talking to you're very disappointed with this program we I mean, look at the church and we're extremely disappointed i think this can't be it this isn't home you are right our coming to christ our coming into this temple and building this temple this is home. It's one leg away. Do not mistake the church as home. And please do not advertise the church as home. You are putting far too much on the church and it was ever meant to meet. We are not home. We are simply a bunch of pilgrims on our way home. We are making the ascension to the new Jerusalem. We are just welcoming exiles home, not home. Note the difference. We often, whether it's church or other experiences in life, we get glimpses of home, right? Like these dreams, we get glimpses of this in life. But every single glimpse and experience that we get that is somewhat resembling our true home, the satisfaction, this beauty that captivates us, this thing that says, this is otherworldly, this is something that God wants, this is amazing, we go into it, and the minute we grasp it, it seems to elude us, right? And we deal with this constant disappointment in life, whether it's the church, a marriage, a job, a vacation. We think that that's it, that's the answer, and we go, and once we're there, it, it wasn't quite what I expected. Disappointment defines life. And in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about exactly that. And he says, how do you respond to this disappointment? Well, he says that there are three responses that we can have to this this disappointment. First, you can be the fool. The fool says, well, the problem was my experience. So all I actually need is a new woman. I need a new job. I need a new vacation. See, the problem was the other ones. They just weren't the right ones. So I'm going to go for more. And they keep on looking and keep on looking and keep on expending. And it's the experience's fault. I need a better, newer, whatever's on the cutting edge experience. That's the fool's way. Then there's what he calls the sensible man's way. Sensible. He's the man that says, oh, all this yearning, all this longing for home, that's just child play. That's fairy tale stuff. There is no home. This is as best as it gets. So why don't you mature and accept that and just simply look at all those longings, all those illusions and those evasive feelings of satisfaction. That's not real. You'll grow out of that. Just learn to cope with things now, which is a much better route if indeed there was no true home. But the problem is, lewis says himself if there's, there's these desires within us that no experience can satisfy it says that we're made for another home there is another home so then third there's the christian response the christian is the dreamer how does he respond to disappointment he sides with Zechariah, and he dreams of home that's what he does he looks past what just the naked eye can see And even in the dark, still moments where it seems like nothing is happening and disappointment is at its fullest, he sees something. Something more, something that's there. You see, there's two kinds of people in this world. There are reactors and there are actors. Reactors go with wherever the world takes them. And this world is fragmented. It's disappointing. There are curses, there are blessings There are disappointments and there are excitements. And the reactor reacts to whatever is coming his way. He reacts to a fragmented world. So when the world curses him, he's sad. And when the world blesses him, he's ecstatic. and He just reacts to what comes. The actor, however, is the person who knows his role and his place in the drama of God and he holds firm there regardless of what the fragmented world throws at him. He is whole and he has a whole view of what's going on because he sees through the fragmentation that there is something solid, there's something that cannot be shaken, something that cannot be moved. It's the mountain of God on which sits the new Jerusalem, my true home. He has a vision of the wholeness of home. And as he's looking at that, he becomes an actor because he's rooted in that. Nothing can move him and sway him. And he says, I now act upon the circumstances in my life. They don't act upon me. I'm not a reactor. I am playing my part in it. Actors see the wholeness of home because they're dreamers. They look past the fragmentation and the homelessness and the exile and they see what is there behind all this. They see what is coming. They see true home. And they say, that's where I root myself. That's where I stand. And it's the actors that become the builders of the temple. And those are the ones Zechariah was inviting. Come and dream with me that we can overcome this disappointment and turn this fragmented rubble and find the true home within it and start building it and wait for it to come. All right, so that's what I think Zechariah wants us to do. I think he's inviting us to dream with him. The night is silent; it's dark. When you sleep, you can't get anything done. It's like some of us have a hard time sleeping. Maybe we want to do something about our life. We want to get in control. Sleep says, "I'm not. A, I just have to let go." And and that's how the dreams open. Right? All is at peace. And the angel cries out, and Zachariah is probably feeling the same thing. No, Lord, why? Help us. Save us now. Do something. And we feel that way. But dreams are awesome because what dreams do is they're working in the darkness and in the silence and in the inactivity. They're moving. They're casting pictures. They're painting visions. But what if... What if by Zachariah casting these dreams and a- inviting the people to enter into them, what if these dreams are actually, they're not a state of insom- well, not, not that uh, they're not a state of somnia, they're not a state of unconsciousness, but these dreams are actually calling people to wake up to their true reality, to their true home. You follow me? Maybe these dreams are calling them to get out of their bad dreams. And to enter into a reality that's truer than the one we think we sense and feel and control every day. It is Paul the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 14 who does say, Awake, O sleeper, and rise, and Christ will shine on you. You will see. There's a calling in the Bible to wake up. That we're somehow asleep. And it is Lewis who talks about in Mere Christianity that, Maybe when we get home, we're going to look back upon all this as if it was a bad dream. I think Zechariah, I think God is inviting us into these dreams to say, this is more real than what we usually call reality. This sees clearer because this sees past the disappointment, past the fragmentation. It finds the underlying wholeness of God holding everything together of our true home. Coyote and Roadrunner was one of my favorite cartoons growing up. It still airs, right? And um, I'm, I don't even know when it was created. It would probably date, you know, it probably goes way back, right? Anyways, if you don't know Coyote and Roadrunner, it's just that it's the endless, endless episodes of Coyote chasing Roadrunner and eternally failing to catch him, eternally watching his own booby traps backfire upon him. And he dies and dies and resurrects and resurrects. And it's just this constant cycle, which, by the way, is paganism. So it's an interesting picture that Coyote represents the paganism of all things keep repeating. And Roadrunner is the internal one that keeps on going. And um, anyways, you know, Coyote's always trying to catch Roadrunner. He sets up these booby traps and stuff. And every time Roadrunner seems to just like, ha-ha, it didn't work. And the Coyote goes, how did that not work? Tries it and it blows up on him, right? Um, There's this one particular one where the road in which they're always chasing each other upon. The road goes towards a cliff and then takes a sharp turn right. And Coyote goes, I know how to get roadrunner here. So he paints a picture right on the edge of the road, on the edge of the cliff where it turns right real sharp. And he paints the picture to make it look like the road is going straight. So his idea is that, oh, stupid roadrunner is going to see this, and he's going to fall for it, think the road's straight, he's going to crash right into my picture, tear through it, and fall hundreds of feet down at the bottom of the cliff. So Coyote's all waiting, he's eager to watch this happen. To his dismay, roadrunner comes, well, actually to his delight, roadrunner comes and runs right for the picture. He falls for it. To his dismay, Roadrunner does not tear through the picture and plummet to the bottom of the cliff. He runs into the picture and continues to follow the road. And Coyote's going, what in the world is going on? So he tries it himself. Would you know it? He tears through the picture and plummets to his uh, partial death. <laughs> and I look at that, and I it, it, it captures something there, doesn't it? it says that there are pictures in the world, pictures that are meant to be entered into. And I feel like God has given us pictures like that one that Coyote painted, that we like Roadrunner to go into. Do you not have experiences sometimes where you seem to transcend, you seem to pierce, it seems to be a portal, some sort of a dream, that experiences something other than this world? Almost like this is what I was meant to live for. Do you ever have a glimpse of that? An experience of that? Sometimes God gives us picture, that kind of a picture, that kind of a dream through music. You know, there's music that just says, there's a God. It's a music where your heart's like this. I'm at peace here. This is right. Or there are books. Books or there is art and oftentimes those are dreams they're they're portals that sort of take you into another world and to another place right they ask you to travel with them and it's almost a way and when you're in that moment your disappointment is gone you're you're almost elevated above that nay not above that but past it as Rhoda and i went into the picture we're brought into something, which I think is glimpses of our true home. Sometimes, yes, it's through books, experiences, art, music, but often it's also through prayer, it's through worship, it's through the word. And the Christian knows that. There are times when you're in those moments where it's as if we entered into the painting. And for that brief moment, we're, getting, we're seeing past the disappointment, past the rubble, we see the dream of true home. And we partake of that and we say, this is it. I can be an actor right now. I can build the temple. I can bring those far away in. That's what dreams are to do. They're to root us in our true home and overcome the disappointment all around us. That's what Zachariah's dreams are here for. That's why he's inviting us into them. And that's why I think God's given us many things in this world to enjoy, like, like the word and church and, and books and things. They, they become those paintings, those dreams to, to let us see past the disappointment, get glimpses of the world to come. You know, it's almost like all of these things are like wardrobes that take us from some attic upstairs in a house in England into a new world where animals talk and trees move and lions are king you know what i mean there are portals that i think god wants us to occasionally go into and say i see i see new home to be a dreamer with zachariah and to realize that sometimes those dreams see more clearly than my own eyes of flesh can see so in closing c.s lewis says this this is the third and final quote i said i was going to do um says this being drawn into christ and that's almost that sense of the dream right you're being drawn into something away from the disappointment you're you're piercing you're penetrating into another experience being drawn into christ is the only thing we were made for and there are strange exciting hints in the bible that when we are drawn in a great many other things in nature will begin to come right and then he closes it like this. The bad dream will be over. It will be morning. And that's what Zachariah is calling us into. To dream of the new home that the bad dream might be realized and it might end. And you might be stuck in that tonight. This is your wardrobe into Narnia into God's reality, into God's world, into your true home. This and among many other things. There are many things that can do that for you, but it all stems from here. And so I think Zachariah would say with me, he's inviting us to, don't let the disappointment stop you and hinder you and turn you into a reactor, but let the dream take you past the disappointment to be rooted in your true home because that is truly what we're longing for it's all hone, but the one extra leg makes it home